Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. It's been a a good month of weather, hasn't it? I don't know about you, maybe you're a winter person, and you know what, if you are a winter person, I'm really thankful for you this week. Like, really, I am thankful that you enjoyed this weather this week, and maybe the weather that's coming this next week, I hear, it's been such a great winter, and I, who am not a winter person, have thoroughly enjoyed this winter because you know what? The dreariness, the coldness, the length of winter seems to just drag on forever, at least for myself. I know there's always that promise that spring is coming, and, but it's hard to remind ourselves sometimes, right? When we're in those seasons where it's dark and bleak and long, that another season is arriving. Now, This past week, I think it was on Wednesday, where that huge snowstorm came in, I ended up taking the train to work because I don't like driving in the winter. So I took the train to work, and after a long day, I was exhausted, ready to get home, and I arrived at the train station, ready to get home to my house, can't wait to get home into warm clothes and my warm bed, and I, I stood on that platform of the train. Actually, I was inside the station because it was freezing. There was a storm going on outside. So I'm standing in the station, waiting to get on the train, surrounded by this wonderland of winter and snow and ice that all of you seem to enjoy, maybe some of you. You know what happened? I'm standing on the platform, and my train drives right past me. I'm not kidding. Speechless, we went into the station to look at the announcement screen to find out when the next train is going to be arriving, and it says it's not coming for another hour. This is like 10.30 at this point. 10, I think it was 10. And so... Defeated is a good word to describe how I felt in that moment. I was tired. It had been a long day. I was cold. The temperatures were freezing. I was hungry because I had been in meetings and I had skipped dinner. You know what? I was angry because through no fault of my own, I was going to have to wait another hour until I could begin my commute home. And so frustrated, a few other passengers in the station with me, they started calling the after-hours line of the train company. I'll admit, I was angry. I was angry that we had paid for a ticket and they had failed to pick us up. In that moment, it's hard to admit, but I was not kind. I wasn't kind. I was demanding that they figure out a way to get us home as soon as possible. And so the representative on the phone, they said they were confused. They said, this doesn't happen. Trains don't just not stop. Maybe it was weather-related. Maybe there was a reason why the train couldn't stop on the track because there was a storm going on. So they checked the, the video footage of the station. And finally, after several calls to several people, because it seemed that lots of offices were closed at 10.30 p.m., they discovered what had happened with our train. See, our train had been a short train. So it actually had stopped at the beginning of the station. But this station was under renovation, and so the area they wanted you to stand in was at the end of the station, and there was actually a wall, so you physically could not see the beginning of the station. So when we saw the train coming towards us, we left the station, stood out on the platform, 
and it actually accelerated past us. We think it was coming towards us. It was actually driving away. And so they explained this to us and they apologized that they had not made an announcement in the station. They apologized that there had been no signage, but unfortunately, there was nothing that they could do and we would just have to wait to board the next train. And so because we couldn't do anything else, we waited, defeated, frustrated because something was completely out of our hands. And you know what? We were frustrated with ourselves. If only we hadn't been seeking the comfort and the warmth of the station, we would have been out on the platform and seen that the train had arrived and run down to meet it. I wonder, have you ever been in that scenario? Feeling defeated? Knowing that whatever reason, you now have to endure a season of waiting and hoping, difficulty or pain, because something is completely out of your control. As we end our series on joy today, we're going to look at two stories of defeat. And I know that sounds crazy, joy versus defeat. How is that possible? Well, we have two stories. One of the stories that I'm going to tell you about is called a concept story, and one of them is a context story. Let me tell you what I mean by that. First, a concept story. A concept story clarifies an idea or a theme to reveal a truth. For example, I can tell you a concept story about a group of retired men who each week come to church and play ping pong as a community group. And you'd be able to learn from that story that the concept about participating in a community brings joy and happiness at any age. Second story is a context story. Now, a context story actually clarifies why a situation is happening by giving you some background information. For example, I can tell you about a difficult story about a, a villain in history, someone who did terrible things, and if I told you about their childhood and it was difficult, you would probably understand a little bit more clearly why maybe they had done some things in history that they had. See, a context story is giving you information that almost causes a light bulb to go off in your head. Often you'll understand an event that is happening with greater clarity because the information that you're given gives you context for the experience. So we have two stories today. One of them is a concept story, clarifies an idea. One of them is a context story, clarifies why a situation is happening. And I want you to figure out which is which, okay? So first story, guy named Paul. Now, Paul was arguably one of the most influential people in all of the New Testament. Paul dedicated the latter half of his life to spreading the gospel, traveling everywhere so that everyone might hear the message of Jesus. Now, Paul had had a hard past, though. Before coming to know Jesus, Paul was one of the most notorious prosecutors of Christians. He killed them. He was ruthless in his desire to stop the spread of Jesus' message by whatever means was necessary. But through a miracle, God opens Paul's eyes and changes his life. And Paul does this incredible 180 turn in an instant. His heart is shifted in the moment that God shows up. And he becomes one of the most influential, fully devoted followers of Jesus this world has ever seen. And you'd think that when God changed his life, his life would become wonderful, right? Isn't that how it works? Isn't that the way it goes in the movies? The villain's heart is changed, and all of a sudden they, they lean towards good and it's happily ever after? Well, that's not how Paul's life went for him. 
Because for the next 35 or so years, after opposing God with his whole life, Paul then devotes his life to traveling everywhere, telling everyone about Jesus. But over this time, we read that Paul is arrested several times. He's thrown into jail for his faith. His life becomes very difficult as the world turns on him. And eventually, Paul is killed for his faith. Now, there's a few moments that are recorded in the Bible that give us a glimpse into what was going on with Paul in this season when he was living in prison, when he was, having, when he was knowing that the end was coming near. But you know what? He's sitting in the jail cell. He's defeated. He knows that very soon, likely, he's been on the other side of this all. He's been the one that's killed the Christians. He knows that those Christians that he had killed, many of them weren't even as influential as he is. He knows what the end story is going to happen. He knows that he's going to soon die for his faith. And so what he does is he takes some time to write some letters to his friends and colleagues. And this is what he says. He says this, But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like an offering to God. And if that's not enough, I'm going to rejoice because I'm going to lose my life. He says this, and I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share with you in your joy. You see, Paul chooses joy. In the face of defeat, he knows how his story is going to end. He knows he's going to soon draw his last breath here on the earth, and he chooses joy. And he encourages his friends. And what he says is, share in my joy. I get to pour my life out for my king. I'm not going to lose my life here. I'm going to offer it. And then he invites his friends to celebrate with him because he says that is joy. Fascinating. Well, if you haven't guessed, this is the concept story. It clarifies an idea so that we can fully understand it. And the concept story truth that I want you to get here is this. We live in a broken world that God did not intend for us. See, when God designed the whole world and humanity, his purpose was to create something that he could enjoy and love. Each word that he spoke as he created waters, rivers, stars, sky, flowers, animals, birds, all of those words were expressions of his nature, love. He wanted to share it with the world that he was creating. The Bible tells us that it was his intention to create the world and then to love it and live with it. But instead of forcing his creation to want to love him, he offered them this choice, didn't he? The choice to love him enough to want the relationship with him. And given the choice of free will, humanity chose their own ways over devotion to him. That's what they chose, which is how sin entered our world. And ever since that moment that Eve took that bite of the apple, sin has run rampant in our world and in our hearts. We desire more about our own way than honoring God's way, don't we? And so the perfect world that God had created was broken. It is not the way that God had intended it when he had built the world, which means that our lives are not the way that God had intended them once to be. And this is why there's pain in our world. This is why we look at the things that are happening around us, the destruction, the wars, and we feel this deep mourning inside of us. 
This is why our bodies fail us. This is why we see relationships all around us break down. This wasn't the world that God had designed for us to live in. And this is why hard things happen, even to good people, because we live in a broken world. See, Paul was experiencing the reality of this. He was being unfairly punished and brutally forced into a season of defeat through no fault of his own, simply because he lived and we live in a broken world. So that's the first story. Second story. It's about a guy named Habakkuk. Now, in Old Testament times, God would appoint a prophet to lead his people through a season. See, before the death of Jesus on the cross, that relationship between God and humanity, because sin had entered the world, the world had become broken, it was strained. There was this problem of sin. So in those days, God could not have a personal relationship with humanity. So what God did, because he loved his people, is he appointed a prophet that could communicate to God on behalf of the people. Now, thankfully now, you and I can approach Jesus. We do not need uh, Pastor Jonathan to go to, to God and talk to him and then come back down and talk to us. We can have personal relationships with Jesus because of what Jesus did on the cross. But in the Old Testament, before Jesus paid the price for sin, that was not possible. So God gave his people prophets so that he could communicate with them. And God would encourage the people. He would caution his people. He would correct his people through messages that he sent through the prophets. Now, this prophet's role was actually to liaison between God and the people. This prophet would help the people understand what God wanted them to do, and then they, the prophet would take the requests of the people back to God. And so this guy's name is Habakkuk. He's the prophet. He's appointed during a season of time where God's people have grown very corrupt, very disobedient. See, the people of God have refused to obey any of the requests that God has made of them. It's kind of like spoiled children who insist that their parents buy them brand new iPhones, then go and smash them on the ground, and then come back and insist that they buy them another one. Over and over, the people of God would treat God like their genie. They'd ignore him. They'd disregard his instructions. They'd only pause their destructive behaviors if they needed him. Then they would demand his attention, insisting that Habakkuk, the prophet, go to God and talk to him on behalf of them. And so at this time, as they're being destructive and disobedient, there's a group called the Babylonians. And the Babylonians were increasing in power over all of the area. People are very nervous because they are overtaking many cities that are surrounding them. And everyone is nervous that they're going to take their communities next. And so God's disobedient people could care less what he wants them to do. They go and insist that Habakkuk the prophet now goes to God to demand that he protects them and stops the Babylonians from attacking them. And so Habakkuk, we read, is grieved by the entire situation. He's grieved towards their disobedience. He knows that they haven't been a people that have been serving or loving God. He's grieved and worried about the reality that the Babylonians probably can overtake God's people. And so he agrees to go and speak to God on behalf of the people. And so Habakkuk goes to the Lord in prayer, and he asks for two things. First, he says he pleads with God, and he says, bring your people back to obedience. Would you draw them back to your heart? And after he's asked that of God, which is a great thing to ask of God, 
Next he goes and he says, and God, remember you are a faithful God. Remember you love your people. Would you protect us from Babylon? And you'd expect God to agree, right? To help his people, to pull them back to him, to return them to obedience, to protect them. But instead, God does something else, and I find it fascinating. God says to Habakkuk, in the book of Habakkuk, he says, it's going to be very difficult for you to hear the things that I am about to say, so I want you to brace yourself. And then he goes on and says, Habakkuk, be assured that I hear my people's cries, and I know that they want me to rescue them. But instead of rescuing them this time, I'm going to allow Babylon to rise up against my people and overtake them. I'm going to use the situation to discipline them so that they return to obedience. And Habakkuk is floored. He's silent. He himself recognizes the disobedience of God's people. His own heart is grieved by all of their actions and the way that they defy him constantly with their lives. But the truth is that Babylon is this evil, corrupt nation. Surely God is making a mistake by allowing evil Babylon to rise up and thrive while his own people are defeated. And so in Habakkuk, he cries out to God and he says, why would a faithful God let his people suffer? Why would God raise up a people who are far more evil than we are? Why would God allow Babylon to continue to reign unpunished for their evil ways? And these are all questions that you and I answer. Maybe a little bit differently, but we, we, we ask them. Why does God not deliver me from the circumstances that I'm in right now? Why will God not destroy my enemies? Why does it seem I'm being punished so severely when so-and-so, who did much worse things than I did, actually seems to be getting away with it? The answer to these questions is very tough to hear, so I'm going to ask you to brace yourself for a moment. Just like Habakkuk, I want you to take a deep breath as I tell you the answer to these questions. Sometimes the reason that God doesn't deliver us from our circumstances is because of this verse. The Lord disciplines those he loves. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves. You see, God is a king, and he's asked his people to live in a way that shows the world that we are his. And so when we disobey him, when we choose my way over his way, we dishonor him. God is also a parent, and he's a good parent. And one of the parent's main roles, and we don't like it, is to discipline our children. Because here's the truth, children who do not understand rules and boundaries will grow up to be destructive adults with no rules and boundaries. The same is true of followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus who do not understand rules and boundaries that keep us safe will become destructive representations of Jesus with no rules and boundaries who will harm a lot of people. The truth is that by allowing the Babylonians to rise up and defeat God's people, God was actually giving them a gift because God disciplines the people that he loves. And even though Habakkuk is probably completely confused, it's hard to understand, we can hear that he wrestles with it, God explains to him that there is going to come a time when he will deal with the evilness of Babylon. He is a holy God. He cannot allow evil 
to continue. God assures Habakkuk that he will not allow Babylon to get away with their destructive ways either. But for this season, God will use Babylon to overtake his people so that his people might be disciplined and discipled. Oh, that's a hard word, right? Discipled. God does this so that his people will repent of the ways that they are acting and return to him. If you haven't guessed it, this is a context story. It helps us to understand why a situation is happening, why a holy God, a loving God, a faithful God would allow his people to be overtaken. The truth here I want you to see is that sometimes bad things happen because you made bad choices. Sometimes bad things happen in my life because I have made bad choices. The truth is that each of us will find ourselves in seasons of defeat because the choices that we have made in our lives. The reality is that bad choices come with consequences. Sometimes it's not just a bad things happen to good people scenario like Paul's, and sometimes it is. But sometimes instead it's bad things happen because you made bad choices. See, in the story of Habakkuk, God is making it clear to his people that he will not tolerate their bad behavior any longer. God will not allow sin to reign in the hearts of his followers and draw us further away from him. He loves us enough that he will step in and discipline us so that we will return to him. See, God cannot allow his children to go about their days without disciplining us. If we have made a decision to follow Jesus, like our friends here this morning, who have said, I am going to follow Jesus with my life, it means that we're going to live under his kingship. And choosing to live under his kingship means that we're willing to submit to his authority. We're choosing to honor him with the way that we live our lives. Here's the thing, I love how Habakkuk responds because he wrestles with it. He doesn't understand. He's confused. But eventually his response turns into this beautiful prayer that I'm going to share with you. I'd understand if he continued to be confused and anger, but instead what he does is, instead of grumbling, he starts to turn his worries, his fears, into prayer. He says this, Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop will fail, the fields will lie empty and barren, even though the flocks will die in the fields and the cattle barns will be empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. Can you see some similarities here between Habakkuk's response and Paul's response? I have it right here for you. Paul says, even if, even if I die, share in my joy. Habakkuk says, even though, even though everything's going to happen, still I will rejoice. See, both choose joy. Paul is imprisoned for serving God. He helps us understand that concept that because of our broken world, bad things happen to good people. Yet still, he can choose joy. Habakkuk giving us context to understand why God disciplines his disobedient children, even though he's going to live through a difficult season coming up, he still chooses joy. Both of them have probably are understandably anxious. They're probably nervous. They're worried of the season that's going to come next. But both are able to take those negative emotions, those human emotions, those emotions that all of us feel and they're able to take them, and through prayer, they're determined to set their eyes 
on God. See, they raised their voices loud, declaring that God would lead them and that they would choose joy despite the looming certain defeat that was about to come. See, joy for them was a way of life. It wasn't a feeling. Joy was a person. It wasn't an emotion. Joy recognized that God was in control regardless of the reality of what they were about to go through. And Joy declared that God could be trusted. Friends, we are his people. He will ultimately rescue us. He promises that. He will restore the brokenness of this present world. But until then, what he says is that he is with us. This week marked the start of Lent, which is a 40-day period that leads up to the Easter season. It's actually a season where we can prepare our hearts to celebrate Easter. This past Wednesday, we had an Ash Wednesday gathering as a community, which was a beautiful opportunity to step towards Easter together. If you didn't have a chance, whether you couldn't be here or watch online, I would encourage you, watch the replay. Journey with us in this season of Lent. See, Lent is the practice of slowing down our lives, similar to how we do Advent for Christmas. Slowing down our lives to reflect on the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. His willingness to come to this broken world, live among us, so that he might restore it and the broken relationship that God has had with humanity because of sin. See, through Jesus' death on the cross, he broke the power of sin that it had on our world. He canceled that debt that we owe which allows each of us to have that personal relationship with God. You don't need a pastor. You don't need an elder to go to God for you. You can go to God on your own. There's no need for the prophets any longer because God can once again speak to his people because of what Jesus did on the cross. One of my favorite Bible verses in the whole Bible says this, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. You know what? It reminds me a lot of Paul and Habakkuk's responses. Even if even though. See, Jesus was no stranger to hard seasons. He experienced the reality of our broken world. He grieved the people that he loved and lost here. He experienced the betrayal, the defeat of others' actions that caused him pain. He knew what lonely felt like as he hung dying on a cross, gasping for his last breath, feeling the the absence of the abiding presence of his father that he had always felt since the beginning of time. Jesus knew defeat. And at any moment, he could have stepped off of that cross. He did not have to do it. But instead, he thought of eternity spent with you. And he called it joy. And he chose to endure in that season. See, that's how we endure difficult seasons. The defeated seasons that our choices have cost And the seasons of defeat, through no fault of our own, we're currently living through. Just as Jesus set his eyes on you, we're invited to set our eyes on the one who brings us joy. And so this is how joy becomes our new normal. Regardless of the season that we find ourselves in, whether we're grieving, whether we're defeated, whether we're rejoicing, whether we're broken, whether we're soaring, whether we're uncertain, joy becomes the new normal, as we choose to fix our eyes on Jesus. So how do we live like this? How do we live through seasons of defeat and set our eyes on joy? Well, as we close, I want to give you three, a three-simple-step process 
on what to do when you find yourself in a season of defeat. The first is this. You're going to figure out how you got there. You're going to ask yourself. You're going to do a little assessment. Figure out how you got there. Take time to assess your situation. Ask God to help you understand why you find yourself in this season. The answer is going to boil down to one of two reasons. The first is this, a reality of a broken world. That was Paul's experience. He was doing everything right. But because of this broken world, humanity often chooses their ways over God's ways. And in Paul's case, humanity was choosing to inflict pain on an innocent person. In other cases, it's just because you're in part of a broken world. This is not the way that God intended our world to function, but this is what we find ourselves in. And so sometimes we're in a season of defeat because we're in a broken world. Many of us are going through seasons of defeat right now because someone else made a choice that landed you here today. If that's the case, you know what you can do? You can recognize that though it wasn't your choice to end up in this season, it is your choice how you will respond in this season. We'll get to that in a second. So the first reality is that we live in a broken world. The second answer to that tough question is that, well, you're there because of the consequences of your own actions. That was Habakkuk and God's people's answer to why they were going through their experience. They had chosen disobedience. They had chosen their ways over God's ways. They had chosen to treat God like this genie instead of a king. And God was using this season to discipline and disciple them, to draw them back to himself. In all honesty, many of the seasons that we walk through that we would classify as seasons of defeat are because of the choices that we have made. I know that's hard. Bad things happen because we make poor decisions. And when that is the case, we need to repent of choosing our ways over God's ways. We need to recognize our circumstances as God's discipline and also his love. And then we need to choose to return back to him. So the first thing you're going to do, figure out how you got there, is either the reality of a broken world or it's the consequences of your own choices. The second thing is we're going to remind ourselves of some truth. Regardless, whether it's A or B, we need to remind ourselves of some truth. The first one is this. Our world is broken. But God says that he is going to fix it. It's not always going to be this way. So we remind ourselves of that truth. Even though I live in a broken world, even though today is difficult, even though the next season is going to be difficult, the reality is I live in a broken world. Everybody goes through seasons of defeat, but God promises that one day he will fix it. The second thing is this. Bad things happen to good people, even God's people. Just because we're followers of God, Paul's the perfect example, becomes a follower of Jesus and his whole life turns up. So difficult all of a sudden. Bad things happen to good people. That's just a reality of our world. It's a truth that we have to live with. The third one is this. God is a good parent. He disciplines those whom he loves. God's a good parent. He's not going to watch bad behavior go on forever. I have three kids. I can't discipline them every second of the day. I wish that I could. But it's not fun. Sometimes they have to learn, but sometimes I have to step in. Sometimes they're being so destructive that Skip and I have to pull them back. That's a good parent. It's not a fun job. No one wants to do it, but it's a role of a parent. So we're going to figure out how we got there, remind ourselves of truth. The third thing that we're going to do 
is set our course, which is following Jesus' example. For those of you who might not know, my husband Skip is a sailor. I know, yes, his real name is Skip. Everybody asks it. It was his name given to him at birth. It's his only name. He wasn't even given a middle name. Skip is his name. And his parents joke that he was born with a purpose and that was to sail. And he fulfilled his purpose. He probably likes sailing more than anything else uh, besides his family, of course. But he does like to sail. He likes to sail a lot. And so when we were dating, Skip actually taught me how to sail, because I know he wanted to see if I could cut it on the water. Because I know that he would not have married me if I, I wouldn't be sailing with him. Like, he loves to sail. And so thankfully, I did make the cut. I do love sailing. Now, the first sailboat that I learned to sail on was a very small boat. It was a 24 CNC, if you know sailboats. It wasn't like the boats that you see in the movies with those big wheels at the back of the boat. Instead, our boat had what you call a tiller. And this is a tiller right here. And so what you do is you use that tiller, and that's how you steer the boat. The tiller's attached to the rudder underneath the boat, and that's how you steer the boat. You push in the opposite direction of the way that you want to go. Now, I've sailed now with a tiller, and I've sailed with one of those big wheels, and I would argue that a tiller is the way that you want to learn how to sail because it teaches you how to feel the wind. Now, steering the boat with the tiller was actually my favorite thing to do. I didn't like running up and fixing sails at the front of the boat. Like, it felt uneven. Skip has lived on a boat, so he loves it. I like staying at the back, and I liked steering the boat with the tiller. But here's the thing. The tiller is an exhausting job. Because if you have a really windy day or a stormy day, what you're doing is you're actually pushing constantly against the wind, trying to get the boat where you want to go. And by the end of the day, your back muscles hurt. Your arm muscles hurt. It's exhausting. And so but because of this, the second year that we had that boat, we purchased a really little gadget. And it was actually an autopilot. And you would attach the gadget onto the tiller, kind of like right here. You would attach it and have this like spoke thing that went out there. And what would happen is that autopilot would make slight adjustments all the time. You could sit back and relax. And every few seconds, every couple minutes, you would hear the, the autopilot like, and it would, it would move the boat slightly, making sure that you went where you were aiming to go, making sure that you had set your coordinates into the autopilot and it was going to get you where you wanted to go. It was fixed on a specific location. The waves would not affect the autopilot. The change of the winds couldn't stop it. A storm would not deter your course. Even through the darkness of night, or even when you couldn't see the horizon and know where you were going, that autopilot would ensure that we would arrive at our destination because the coordinates were set. And this is what Paul is saying. That's what he's doing. He's setting his coordinates on Jesus when he says, even if I lose my life, still I will rejoice. And that's what Habakkuk was doing, setting his coordinates on God when he said, even though we will be defeated, I will rejoice. And this is what Jesus said. This is what he was doing when he said, even though the pain of the cross will be unbearable, I will endure it because of joy. See, as they walk through seasons of crushing defeat, as anxiety threatened to overtake them, as their feelings were more than they could possibly bear, as the fear of the reality that was looming became more and more real, as the terror of the present started to set in. Just like an autopilot, constantly making those slight adjustments, 
they too began making slight adjustments so that they could stay on the course of joy. See, their fears started to turn into prayers. Their doubts, they started to channel into praise. Even if, even when, even though. See, this is how we choose joy, even in seasons of defeat. Even though it meant death on a cross, Jesus chose to set his eyes on the joy that was going to come. Even when it meant becoming captives of the Babylons, of the Babylonians, Habakkuk chose to set his eyes on the joy of belonging to a king. Even when it meant laying down his life in the process, Paul chose to set his eyes on the joy of devoting his life to the one that he loved. You see, this is how we embrace joy in difficult seasons. Joy is not a feeling. Joy becomes a posture that we choose to take. Joy is this deep, abiding trust in Jesus, even if, even though, even when. The reality is that you and I are going to go through difficult seasons of life. Some of these seasons are, won't be that bad. They'll be beautiful days. Others are going to feel like a storm rolling over the lake. Some of these storms will be through no fault of our own, and some of these storms will be because of choices that we've made that have brought consequences. As I close, I'd love to pray with two groups of people today. Maybe you're walking through a difficult season that is the result of a choice that you did not make. You might be experiencing the consequences of someone else's bad choices. Or maybe you're just living with the broken realities of what it's like to live in a broken world. And I've been there. I know how hard a place that is to live in. But I want you to know that God sees you. He sees you in the middle of the storm, and he's with you, just as he was with Paul. He is there to guide you. He's there to stay close to you. He's there to deliver you into your next chapter. And while it might seem that you have little control over anything that is going on, I want you to know that you have control over your reactions to your current experience. You could, take, you could allow this unfair reality that's going on to harden you, turn you bitter. You could allow the stress of your circumstances outside of your control to strain your muscles, kind of like when I was steering the boat with the tiller. Everything was so exhausting. Or you could choose to kind of tap into an autopilot and set your coordinates. Decide that regardless of the storm that's raging all around you, your eyes are going to be set on Jesus because he's the one that's going to help you through it. In those moments, we choose joy by turning our fears into prayer and our anxieties into praise, just as Habakkuk and Paul both did in different scenarios. And if that's you, if that's, am I explaining your situation? I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. But I want to pray for those who find themselves in a storm because of choices that you yourself have made. The Bible teaches us that all of us have fallen short of God's standard. Each of us choose to do things our way instead of God's way. I do that. Pastor Jonathan does that. Everyone does that because we're all humans. Sometimes we're able to course correct on our own, before things start to spiral out of control. We're able to go to God and repent for our selfishness. We're able to reset the compass. But sometimes we choose not to do that, don't we? Sometimes we decide to do that. We're going to go where we want to go. 
I'm going to do what I want to do, regardless of the cost to myself, regardless of the cost of others, regardless of the cost of grieving God's heart. If you're living through a season of bad choices, I want you to hear me in this. There is great hope as you live through that season because you're living the truth that God disciplines those who he loves. See, the role of discipline is, discipline is to allow us to return to obedience, but it's our choice. If we want to return to obedience, it's our choice. If we want to go back, repent and say, God, I messed up. Would you help me? That's you today. If you're ready to admit that you're in a season of defeat because of consequences and choices that you made yourself, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask God to help you reset those coordinates. We can't do it on our own. We need his help. So we're going to ask him to do that. I'm going to ask him to help draw you back to following him. Let's pray together. God, I am so grateful that you are constantly with us. You sent your Holy Spirit to be with us. We're never alone, God. You never leave us. Like a good parent, your desire is to lovingly guide us back so that we would make choices that would honor you. God, I think of my friends today who are struggling through seasons of defeat through no fault of their own, simply because this is not the life that you intended for us to live in. Like the Apostle Paul, God, they find themselves at the short end of bad circumstances and are living through great difficulties, maybe with no end in sight. Would you help us, God, if we're in that season to set our eyes on you, to take the anxiety of our situation and offer them to you as a prayer, even if, even when, God, even though. Would you help them to declare the words of your truth that even, even if they're in the most difficult season of their life, God, you are with them. Thank you that you promised joy to be available to us in every season, that we are able to set our eyes on you and that is what brings us joy. God, I thank you that joy is not the absence of pain, but joy is the presence of you. So would you come, God? Would you draw us closer to you? Would you help us to know that you are here? And then God, I think of my friends who are struggling through a season of defeat because you are using this season to discipline and disciple them. God, I thank you that you are a good parent, a parent who desires to protect your children from harm and destructive behaviors. And so God, I pray that we would recognize right now in this moment, Father, would you speak to us if we are in a season of defeat because of the bad choices that we have made? And then God, would you draw us closer to yourself? God, we repent of the ways that you have, we have grieved your heart, just as your people in Habakkuk did, God. Would you remind us that you love us? Would you redraw our eyes back to you so that we can experience the joy of your presence and the joy, God, of your discipline, even in the most difficult of circumstances? God, I thank you that you're a good father, that regardless of the circumstances, whether the situations of my life are here because I live in a broken world or the situations of my life are here because I've made bad choices, God. Whatever, whatever the situation is, God, I thank you that you are with us through it all. I thank you that joy is not a feeling, God, but a deep trust in your constant presence in our lives. In your name, amen. 
Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.